Mississippi was one of the most powerful states in the Union when it seceded and joined the Confederacy. Over the next 16 years, devastating military campaigns, revolutionary emancipation, long-term army occupation, and groundbreaking legislation redefined the state and the nation. The Civil War and Reconstruction Governors of Mississippi is a digital history project that provides free online access to the state's governor's papers, about 20,000 documents, from just before the Civil War through the era of Reconstruction and into the New South. Welcome to Episode 1 of a five-part series detailing this major endeavor. Funding for this program was made possible by the Dale Center for the Study of War and Society at the University of Southern Mississippi. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this evening's live stream presentation, the first of a series of five live streams of this nature. My name is John. I am the Tattooed Historian. And I'm so glad to be joined by a plethora of friends this evening. Uh, once again, I'm joined by Dr. Susanna Ural. She's the professor of history and co-director of the Dale Center for the Study of War and Society at the University of Southern Mississippi. She is the author of numerous books, articles, editorials, blog posts, columns, and digital history projects that share cutting edge historical ideas and research with scholars, educators, and the public. Also joined by my pal, Dr. Stephanie Seal Walters, the USM digital liaison in the humanities. Steph earned her PhD from George Mason University and focused her studies on loyalism in Virginia during the American Revolution. On top of being a regular on my live streams and podcasts, Steph has been a leader in the classroom when it comes to digital humanities. And something else to admire her for, she's a huge pug enthusiast. I had to throw that in there, stuff. Yeah, major pug enthusiast. I, I had to throw that in there. Uh, finally, uh, our, our special guest for the evening is uh, Jeff Gambrone. He earned a bachelor's degree in history from Mississippi State University and a master's in history from Mississippi College. Uh, Jeff works as a reference librarian in the state archives. He is author of four books, Beneath Torn and Tattered Flags, A Regimental History of the 38th Mississippi Infantry, CSA, an Illustrated Guide to the Vicksburg Campaign and National Military Park, Remembering Mississippi's Confederates, and Vicksburg and the War, co-authored with Gordon Cotton. His articles have appeared in North-South in North -South Civil War Magazine, Military Images Magazine, Civil War Monitor, and North-South Traders Civil War Magazine. Thank you all for being here this evening. I appreciate each of you here for the first episode of our five-part series. Thanks, John. Thank, Thank you. you. Great to be here. I hope those introductions <laughs> were, were satisfactory for you. And I hope that su surprise intro video, I hope everyone enjoyed that. that was great. We, look, uh, we look so good, John. Now I just, you know, we got to live up to it. <laughs> I feel good about myself now. I need to do this more often. I tell you, we, we just do a different video every week and really, really pump it up here. But uh, no, it, it's great to be on with all of you because, uh, as you know, I'm a huge fan of digital humanities and digital historians. And, uh, you know, it's great to be on with you all considering this major project that has been ongoing and is still ongoing. 
And I'm glad that we are together to do this over a series of five weeks, because this is a big story to discuss and a a very long history of Mississippi uh, overall. Uh, So, Susanna, I'd like to start with you uh, first off, because we need to get the ball rolling with how did this all come about with this digital project? Okay, no, that sounds great. So we were really inspired by what was then the only other Civil War Governors project in the country, the Civil War Governors of Kentucky, which had started probably about 10 years ago or so. Um, And I had known Patrick Lewis, then director of the project. And the idea was to capture governor's collections and make them readily available for the public, for scholars, anybody who wants to use them. Because while these sound like elite collections, right? Wealthy politicians who make the decisions that affect you know, the lives of thousands, they actually hold letters, right? It's, it, they capture the voices of just everyday people because in the 19th century, if you had a complaint, particularly if you wanted to petition to get some help, any sort of assistance, you wrote to the governor. Or, and I, you know, I always joke, I mean, the, the governor's papers for the 19th century are like our social media. If you just want to hear from everybody, um, that's the place to go to get this really interesting sampling. So about 2019, I approached uh, the Mississippi Digital Library, which is housed at the University of Southern Mississippi. It basically helps repositories all over the state make their, their collections, portions of their collections available online. And I approached MDAH, the Mississippi Department of Archives and History with Jeff Works. And you know, I said, look, are you guys interested in digitizing these governor's papers? And of course, MDAH had already started doing it. Jeff was already hard at work at it. They're just like, you know, sure, welcome aboard. We're already doing. <laughs> so it was, it was, so it was, it was great in the sense that they had already started. We were also fortunate in the sense that some collections for governor's papers, they really haven't been gathered together yet. So you have to send people out all over the place collecting these. We really didn't have to do that. I mean, well over probably 95% of the governor's papers were already at the state archives. It was one of the original missions of the state archive to collect these for the Civil Civil War and Reconstruction. The difference with our project, and this has been kind of continued in Alabama as they've started their Civil War Governors of Alabama project, is we include the reconstruction years. Um, And Kentucky's, you know, thinking about doing this as well now, because if you want to argue that you really do hear from everybody, that's not really true until you get to the era of Reconstruction. And in a state like Mississippi, which where over 50 percent of the population was Mm African-American, you know, you you really do start to hear um, from a true representation of the population. You do truly start to hear from everybody, especially once you hit those Reconstruction years. So we are digitizing, transcribing, and annotating, meaning we're providing some historical context for, it's, it's just over 20,000 documents, um, beginning in the fall of 1859 with the Pettus administration and can, continuing through the end of uh, John Marshall Stone's first term, which ends in 1882. And we went that long, you know, I talked with MDAH about it and said, look, let's Let's get into stone, even though he comes in right near the end of Reconstruction. Let's take it through that first term so you can really see the effect of the collapse of Reconstruction. Um, And it just it lets you see and study how Mississippians of all backgrounds experience this incredibly revolutionary time. And it lets you approach it from a lot of different angles. And that's what the podcast is about, helping people understand the angles that we're going to take and some of the new new ideas and the new the new information that we're finding that we're hoping to contribute to the field. 
Do you think that could be uh, uh, an issue with when we talk about Mississippi in the Civil War uh, or Kentucky in the Civil War? And then we can go on through every other state who was who was around at that time where people want to study this this era of history. And they they kind of start out with like Fort Sumter in 1861 and they go to uh, the end in North Carolina in 1865. And then they're like, okay, we've we've done it all with with digitization. We don't have to talk about the Civil War anymore. We got it digitized. You all are gone from the antebellum period, eighteen fifty nine, all the way through Reconstruction, which was uh, an abysmal failure, <laughs> pretty much. And, mm-hmm. and thinking about that, do you think that opening these doors for people to see this stuff for the public, do you think that's going to help out with understanding? just what not only causes the secession crisis, which we're going to go into in a little bit, but also some of the issues that we still face today with with yeah. uh, civil rights and, and things like that. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, Carol Reardon, who's one of my favorite military historians, once made the comment, you know, don't just stop studying these guys after Appomattox. You know, it's not like, you know, you, you hit April 1865 and well, it, it's all gone. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's I've you know, the last chapter in my book on the Texas Brigade was waging peace. And it, it talks about the, the peace is often so much more difficult to win than the war. And for that unit, it was about them waging that adjustment of coming home and that, that kind of difficult transition to this this totally different world. And one in which they were very, very unhappy, obviously, with the results. But waging peace is also about reconstruction and about the tremendous potential and the legislative change that you do see, some successes of Reconstruction and also those failures. And you you can't understand the war and its significance in American history unless you understand those years afterwards, which you're, which you're right, John. I mean, they continue to echo to this day. If you want to understand why people are throwing, you know, chains and ropes around monuments and dragging them to the ground, um, this this will help you understand what's what's going on here. You know, if you want to understand why we are still talking about things like birthright citizenship, uh, 14th Amendment, you know, it's, it's all part of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was the dream of this project, that if we can make these records so easily available that people can keyword search them, it can connect them to other documents that relate to them. You know, MDAH has done a masterful job of preserving these. But the problem is if you can't spend a lot of time, it, this is why we're all jealous of Jeff, right? If you don't have Jeff's job and you can't just yeah. like, live with these documents every day and have a and, and that's what i did for quite a quite a number of years right I, yeah i mean this is why every time i have a question i'm like you know i don't know let me ask jeff yeah. but if, if you can't live with the documents you're never going to get through them right and so that's the idea and that's why i think mdh was on board that's why mississippi digital library was on board let's get these not only available to the public but transcribed so they're easily readable by people who may not enjoy you know, the, the mystery of actually working with the original document and, and provide some context. So because if there's no context, you don't you don't understand necessarily what's going on. Jeff, what has that process been like for you uh, as a historian and, and personally uh, through MDAH working with these documents and making sure they're digitized properly and, and ready for, uh, you know, public knowledge and just to pique that curiosity with the public and also with uh, the needs of of this project in particular? It has been one of the, the great, um, just in most enjoyable periods of my, my career as a historian, being able to work with these documents. 
I was always kind of frustrated that they didn't get more publicity than they did simply because they were so hard to access because, you know, they weren't online. Uh, the, the finding aids were paper. They really didn't give you a, a very, really any description of what the, the material was in the letters. And you literally had to read through them letter by letter. And there are thousands of them. I mean, the Pettus uh, correspondence alone is, I think, 1,500 separate pieces of correspondence. So unless you've got literally weeks and months to sit down and go through it on microfilm, it, it was for the most part inaccessible. So this is just a dream come true to see this material getting out to the public. Uh, it's, it's wonderful. That's awesome. Steph, got to ask about the classroom experience because students are now using these kind of uh, technologies now more than ever. Um, I, I run into them a lot online and, and sometimes in person pre-COVID. Uh, you, are, you are meeting with them uh, almost on a daily occasion uh, and you're, you're working with them. How, has, how have projects such as this one and how has this one in particular also uh, appealed to these students or allowed them to start getting experience with digital humanities? Um, yeah, currently um, at the University of Southern Mississippi, I'm teaching Humanities um, 402-502, which is a brand new class for us. This is the first time we've ever taught this class in digital humanities. Um, but it's a phenomenal um, opportunity for our students to use a collection like CWRGM and start learning how to create digital projects. Um, one of the things that I tell my students all the time, um, digital humanities is 50% content providing 50% um, knowing your digital skills. So at the very beginning of the semester, um, they had to provide content. You cannot create an online museum unless you have artifacts to go into that museum. Um, so they used our From the Page account, um, which is a phenomenal crowdsource transcription software that we use um, from the Brumfields, um, from Sarah and Ben Brumfield, who are fantastic supporters of this project. Um, they had to go in and they had to transcribe these documents, which some of them will tell you they love, some of them will tell you they absolutely loathe. Um, it depends on it depends on what they had to do. Um, and then they also had to go in and subject tag these documents. So every time um, there was a person, place, or thing, they had to tag it um, and put it into our tagging database. So eventually when our um, larger website goes live, um, people will be able to access all the different items that you know my students contributed to tagging. Um, for their midterm project, they had to use the Civil War and Reconstruction Governors of Mississippi project um, to create an online exhibit and I think originally the students were more interested in doing their own work. Um, we've got MLIS students, we've got history, English, you know, anything you could think of. Um, and I told them we were going to use this, um, use this project as a basis for their own exhibits. Um, the students loved it. And I couldn't believe the topics my students were able to come up with, with what we already have transcribed in CWRGM. We saw the long road ahead of us to get all of these documents transcribed. And what we have now students were able to create themes. I have about 16 in the course, um, majority graduate students, some undergrads, um, and every single student chose a vastly different topic. And I didn't have a list. Um, they just had to go into the collection themselves, look at some of the things that have already been subject tagged. And I couldn't believe the rich nature of, I mean, we, some students um, looked at widows' experiences during the war. Some were looking at construction of the 
railroad. Um, others were looking at medical history that's being talked about in these different documents. Um, and what they were able to draw from was just so incredible. So um, while I'm teaching them digital humanities um, and how to create these cool exhibits, it has also been an amazing experience because even though I've been a part of this project for two years now, even I don't know what all is in this collection. And they were just picking out gems right and left, um, stuff that we can use for blog posts and stuff. So it's been great. That's awesome. And, and to think, 35 years ago, we were going to Encyclopedia Britannica. And now we have yeah. all these visual resources, which is just amazing. And, uh, and, the, and the way we train students has changed 180 degrees uh, since that time as well. And I hope we keep pushing that that envelope forward. Uh, Susanna, you said that uh, the, the project basically starts off in 1859, the antebellum years when we're starting to uh, see the seeds of discontent uh, creating a stock, uh, creating a plant, and you're, you're starting to see the springing of the idea of secession. And I think we should start going into this five-part series, obviously in chronological order for the most part, um, and, and thinking about what kinds of documents or people uh, in these collections that you all are going through with, uh, uh, alongside Jeff, uh, really pinpoint this idea of the antebellum crises going into the secession crises? So the collection begins with uh, John J. Pettis's administration beginning in the late fall of 1859. Um, so some of the first documents are gonna come right around that time period, just following John Brown's raid in Harper's Ferry. Virginia, now West Virginia. And that moment in American history where the popular historian Bruce Catton once said, you know, it wasn't that they couldn't get along anymore, it's that Americans didn't even want to get along anymore. And you see that in the documents. There is there is this just this kind of anger and this rage, but there it isn't necessarily always what you expect. You know, there's a couple of great documents in those very early months, excuse me, kind of the late months of 1859, but the early period of Pettus's administration, where you see warnings of, you know, there's a bunch of abolitionists in Mississippi. So, you know, you know, the, this is the, the threat when I originally read some of these documents, I thought was that there's going to be these slave uprisings. But the threat in some of them was that, you know, everybody is not a rabid secessionist. Um, and so the, 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 the tensions immediately when you get into the project, the tensions will remind you that this is not a monolithic experience, that this is not just Confederates thought X or that white Mississippians thought X, you know, and it's, it's, it's this incredible reminder from the very beginning of just how different the experiences were. Um, I love the fact too, that throughout the war, you are reminded that while wars are waged, everyday life continues. And so you will see charges of murder and you will see petitions from family members for leniency on the charges of burglary or theft. You know, it's, it reminds you of these everyday issues. It, 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 it reminds you too that collections like these can be incredibly valuable for people who may not think that their topic can be studied here. If you wanna study criminal justice, if you want to study um, mental illness, you know, the, these records are all in here because these are all issues that the state engaged with. But if you're, you know, if you're like a lot of us who really study military history, I think some of my favorite early, early documents are the ones that represent that rage militaire where there's this, this kind of rush to arms. Mm -hmm. 
And so you get these doc, these, you know, it's right after Lincoln's election. And it's just like, see, I told you, you know, and we, we said from the beginning, if Lincoln gets elected, Mississippi is out. And so you, you do, you get some of those documents that you might expect. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, you know, Jeff and and Steph has done background research on some of the folks in these documents too. So I don't want to talk about them too much, but it's just, it covers so much. I don't want to say, you know, I don't want to oversell it. Like it's, it's, it's all things for all people, but um, it's, it's, it's fascinating what you can find in here. Hmm. I think that's something we often overlook. And I think what, what you've been, uh, what you all been pointing to throughout this time of myself talking with you in different capacities with, with Steph and uh, Susanna uh, is that, you know, this isn't like you said, an experience where everyone's on board everyone's ready to go. I, I just got back from a trip and I visited Steph. We were talking about Natchez, not, not, you know, there's a lot of union sentiment in Natchez. Yeah. And I didn't know that until Steph told me. And then uh, I'm sure many of these documents can also point to that. Uh, Jeff, with, with the, with the experience of secession in Mississippi, what has been some of the documents that piqued your interest uh, from what you have found at MDAH and, uh, possibly use working alongside this project in particular. I really like the the stories of of just the the, the common folk of, of Mississippi. Of the stories you're not going to find anywhere else. Um, from the, a letter from Jane Boykin, who's writing into to the governor asking for some salt uh, because she all of her sons. Uh, she's got seven sons in the Confederate Army, and she needs salt to, to help uh, preserve her meat. Yeah, you'd be surprised how many letters are written to the governor just asking for salt. Uh, it's just something you don't think about today, but in you know 19th century Mississippi, salt was indispensable. If you wanted to preserve your food for any amount of time, you had to salt it. And Mississippi didn't have any natural sources of salt during the Civil War, so it very quickly became a scarce item. And the number of letters just about that one topic alone is amazing. But... Uh, Little things like that are just, I find fascinating. Um, there's, there was a letter in there from uh, a woman who had lost her husband in the war. She had a couple of small children. She was writing from Natchez and she was basically saying, I'm destitute. Um, my husband went off to fight in this war and now I'm forced to basically beg door to door to live. And, and why, is that, why is this happening to me? And what, when you as the governor, what can you do about it? It's just, some of it is just really fascinating and it's, and it's really tugs at your heartstrings to see what, uh, what these people were going through on a day-to-day basis. Steph, is that the, is that one of the main um, assets of a project like this and others with digital humanities is that it gives a voice to those, I, I don't want to say voiceless, but they but they basically were for the longest time. People were overlooking these documents or maybe we just didn't have access to them. Like somebody in Pennsylvania, like myself, didn't have access and uh, until these things are digitized. And now you're starting to see, as Jeff said, the, the common citizen, if you will, having a voice. 
Definitely. And I think that's one of the um, one of the biggest goals of our project, especially on the digital humanities side, was this idea of subject tagging. Um, just because I always tell my students um, when you're dealing with such a large collection, um, sometimes it's difficult for the human brain to see patterns when you're looking at that many documents at once. Um, but when we're subject tagging things, subjects like salt, um, we're able to um, through from the page and what we're going to do on our new website that's going live in June um, is you're going to be able to aggregate all of these documents at once that talk about salt and you'll be able to see these different patterns across the state whereas if you're looking at 20,000 documents at once how is your brain going to pick out every single one about salt or even notice that salt even was there at all? Um, so you're going to be able to find things about children, um, about widows, about the African-American population, free blacks, lots of different types of um, people and backgrounds that you wouldn't necessarily, you would probably find with the naked eye, but it would take you a really, really long time. Um, so one of the things that we want is for the public to have access to these kinds of themes. And I mean, we're not making them up. We're taking them directly from the historical documents, um, just highlighting these words that pop up every now and again. Um, so that's great for the public. It's great for teachers and K through 12 students. Um, and even my students, they found all, like I told you in my class, they found all their themes by themselves. Mm -hmm. um, so it definitely helps us understand a different side of the word by being able to use these DH tools to subject tag. Susanna, there's one name that popped up in our our, our pre-game pre highlights that we were talking about the last couple of weeks, uh, and that's Charles Fontaine. Uh, who is this character and what's going on with him? So Fontaine is, and by the way, I want to make sure everybody knows that if they want to see some of these records themselves, that they can they can find these at the sample document site. Um, and John, I don't know if you were going to put the yeah. link to that in. Yes, I'm the, gonna put that in the comments. Yes. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much. Sure. Because you got it just just so everybody knows that if they want to go to that and and kind of see some of these issues um, that were that we're covering, and it's all kind of broken down into these same kind of sections that we're going to be covering in the in throughout the different podcast series. So Fontaine is this great example of an individual. I wouldn't say he's, you know, from an exceptionally wealthy family, but certainly a wealthier family, slaveholding family. And Steph, I'm going to let her talk because she did a lot of the background on Fontaine. But I love his, the, the document that we pulled from him because he's the guy I was referring to that basically says, you know, Lincoln gets elected, you know, and, and we're out. Um, and he, there's this, this, this kind of very powerful sentiment and he he is ready to go. Um, and, and Steph, did you want to talk a little bit about some of the background you found on Fontaine? I don't want to steal your thunder because I want to make sure Steph, mm -hmm. Steph does a lot of the background historical research on the individuals that we find in the documents. Yeah, definitely. So um, Fontaine is really this interesting figure because he is so ready to go to war. Um, so we have access to incredible repositories that like um, Ancestry.com and Fold3, um, Newspapers.com um, to be able to find a little bit of background information on these individuals. And Fontaine, um, he was really excited to go to war. One of the things that we found from him um, was his enlistment record. And he signs up like day one, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. And the craziest part is he has a lot 
lot of children like most people do in the middle of the 19th century. Um, his oldest child is a son um, and that son is off at school. So he takes his 14 year old who isn't necessarily even old enough to serve um, along with him to war. Um, Fontaine, he, signed, he is enlisted um, as an officer and his, his 14 year old son is enlisted as a private. Um, so not only, you know, was Fontaine ready to sacrifice um, himself for the cause, he was also ready to do that with his 14-year-old son as well. Um, Susanna mentioned to me that this was not necessarily something um, that was extraordinary. Um, this happened, uh, you know, a couple of times throughout the war where a father would bring their son with them. Um, but it was really kind of this interesting moment, um, understanding that, you know, he was that ardent that he was going to bring his son along with him. Um, so there's all sorts of little neat highlights like that. Susan, what else did you see in there? Well, the, the Fontaine document, the thing I like about using that one, and I've, I've used it in the past with groups to explain that rage military, that that rush to arms, that, that frustration with Lincoln's election, um, because it's, it's a great thing to then counterbalance when you'll start to see frustrations with war. Um, and, you know, we can talk about some of those documents later. But, yeah, Fontaine, I would argue, is a pretty, you know, standard story in the sense that he might leave an older son at home to help manage uh, family property, business farming, enslaved peoples as well, um, and take a younger son with him to war, um, you know, almost like staff officer is the wrong word for it, but it's, you know, just... What's that? Oh, I said sorry. Did I say the wrong oh, thing? Oh, did you say it? No, I'm sorry. No, no, no. I, no, that was that's the word that popped in my head too, though. Yeah. But um, you know, he's he's a great example for that because sometimes when we talk about dissent and we talk about unionist sentiment, you don't want that to that to then replace the Confederate story that was told as this monolithic experience. You know, I don't want to replace one you know, singular experience with another one. I want people to understand these these very different experiences. Um, and Jeff, if I remember right too, you found some stuff on Fontaine as well for, from your own research. Yes, uh, he, he really did have an interesting career. He, um, after serving in, uh, I believe it was the second Mississippi Infantry for a short time, uh, he didn't get along well with uh, his commanding officer uh, to say the least. Uh, he, ended, he ended up, uh, uh, resigning his commission, coming back home. Then he joins up again uh, um, and ends up uh, eventually commanding the post of at Grenada, Mississippi. And uh, from there, he, he, he had a lot of interaction with the locals, uh, judging from some of the correspondence I found. And uh, I think he had his hands full. Uh, by, by the time he was commanding at Grenada, it was like 1863. And boy, things are really starting to get uh, tough for the, for the, the locals. And uh, he was really having to deal with a lot of, uh, of tough issues uh, uh, concerning the uh, people's just trying to, to survive day in and day out. Uh, there was uh, a great little letter I found uh, uh, from a, a woman in, uh, in uh, North Mississippi uh, just trying to get reimbursed for uh, housing and feeding soldiers in her, in her home. Uh, it's just all kinds of just interesting little, little tidbits you find when you start delving into these people's lives. Mm -hmm. It's, it's really interesting, too, how they uh, try to assimilate into this military uh, setting for many of them for the first time. Maybe they're not old enough to have served in the Mexican-American War, and now they're trying to serve in this newly developed Confederate Army, and uh, everyone's trying to get their, you know, their feet wet, so to speak, 
with oh, they, how, they couldn't, do I, how do I act? Yeah, thousands of Mississippians couldn't wait to get into uniform. Mm-hmm. In fact, they were they were chomping at the bit to to fight. And mm-hmm. the fact that a lot of their frustration comes out in those early letters because they they can't fight, get to the fight quick enough. Mm-hmm. In fact, yeah, the state's really right. having trouble just uniforming and uh, equipping the men. <laughs> but yeah. some of my favorite stories, though, from those early letters are also that adjustment to military life, right? Where they're just like, you know, my commanding officer says, you know, I can't even go home and I, I need, I just want to go home and check on a few things. And he's like, and I can't. And if I come home and if I come back and I'm a little late, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the guard. I, you know, it's just this, um, it's this fantastic adjustment from civilian life to military discipline. And it's also going to be watching that process of what, freedoms are you going to be willing to give up, right? I mean, this is also the study of command and leadership. Mm-hmm. A, a successful commander will convince his men that it's it's you're going to be willing to give up some of those rights that you treasure in the 19th century as a white man because he can help you understand why you need to. But the unsuccessful commanders, right, are going to be the ones who are just, con- they just can't seem to do it. They tend to abuse their power and that's what you'll also see in these in these documents of these men writing in that you know he he does not have the right to do this to me. And sometimes they're justified, and sometimes they don't understand that. Oh no, actually, he very much does have the right to do that to you. Mm-hmm. Especially when they're politically appointed officers. Yes, right. <laughs> right. And and there's also that difficulty of you know the men want to be able to elect their own officers, but if you don't know much about war and you don't know much about combat, combat, do you really know how to elect an effective officer? And so that's also become that's one of the things I'm going to want to trace. And we're not deep into the do, deep enough into the documents yet. But I want to start to trace some of those 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 decisions. Right. Of mm-hmm. who do they respect at the beginning of the war? Just just when you study effective military units and who do they learn to really respect and follow as the fighting begins, as it becomes mm-hmm. increasingly intense. Mm-hmm. And I haven't figured out yet quite how I'm going to do this. But, you know, John, you and I have talked about how can we recreate kind of that that fog of war element when you're talking about military campaigns. But I also want to recreate it within the unit and that that conditioning that soldiers go through and that process of from becoming the recruit to the veteran of learning how to be an effective soldier, how to follow effective commanders who they choose as effective commanders. And I'm hoping to be able to take documents and show how that process unfolds, not only in the white Mississippi units, but also in the African-American units that are going to be recruited, not only in kind of in Louisiana and Mississippi in that area, starting especially by 1863, and some of the differences that you're going to see in that process, depending on that experience. That'd be interesting for for people like me who, I mean, we've all done tours of our own kinds in Mm -hmm. some form or fashion. You know, we've, we've taken a friend to a battlefield. We've done it for uh for a project in grad school or we've done it uh you know in your local area for someone uh, visiting with a school or etc and it's one thing that i've actually gotten blowback from was when i when we go to like an 1864 battlefield these guys and i'm jumping ahead but just to make this point that the changing face of how these men are serving um in 1861 they're green yeah. But by 1864, I've used the term they're, they're killers. They know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. They, they know how to use that musket. They know how mm-hmm. to fire that cannon effectively against this. 
And sometimes there's a little blowback from people because they don't want to see these men that way. But I think a project like this, where you can digitize these letters and you can understand the changing face of not only warfare, but of the men themselves mm -hmm. saying that, you know, what they've been through and how that could guide them. I think that's a unique opportunity for, for a lot of laymen, let's say, for lack of a better word, uh, to, to understand what this was actually like. Absolutely. You know, and also to understand that by 1863, 1864, not everyone is necessarily that hard, hardened veteran, if you will, right? That you're, you are still going to see the recruitment. If you're looking at some documents in Mississippi and you're looking at the you know, recruitment of African-American units, these are going to be some pretty green, fresh units. Right. The, the guys who are showing up in even some of the established units are not all veterans, right? And how do they fit in? They don't always fit in well, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so there's there's so many things when it comes to military history that you can study through these collections. Jeff was the one who gave me the idea because part of the Pettus Papers includes these military telegrams. And one of the things that Jeff's, Jeff and I were talking about one day was could you piece together these military telegrams to recreate the confusion that you see during military campaigns. When people are reporting, you know, you've, you've got these units are coming in here, you got 100,000 units headed toward Jackson, you know, all this stuff that we know, anybody who studies history knows you, you can't study it backwards just because you, you know, history is a spoil alert by definition, right? We all know right. how it played out. You know right? what happened, yeah. Right, and historians will say, you, you can't study it backwards, but the problem is we know like we already know how this plays out, right? But right. what if using these telegrams, we could recreate the fog of war that Mississippians are experiencing during the Vicksburg campaign as they're trying to figure out where Grant's going, mm -hmm. as they're, you know, as they're trying to figure out where Johnston is, you know, what, what if we could do this? Um, and th that's something else that I'm really going to want to get into when we get into these telegrams. Jeff has been all over the telegrams. We're getting, we're getting the documents as MDH digitizes them. Mm -hmm. And so as those come in, that's going to be something that we're going to want to develop too. There's so many different angles of what you might think of as kind of hardcore military history that you can, we, you can study with these. But as folks are also going to see in some of the later episodes of this podcast, you know, there's there's so much war in society, too, because just as soldiers become hardened, civilians in Mississippi are going to become hardened as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is a state that felt war just as much as you could say, you know, Virginia and the Carolinas did. And so it's 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 going to be an interesting thing to study, too, um, you know, how that process happens there. Jeff, I'm going to come to you with a question. And Steph, I'm coming to you. So get get ready, uh, Jeff. With with you, you've written several books on uh, Mississippi Confederates and and these and the 38th Mississippi and other and other units. When we see these recruitments happening, and and uh, you know when we have like Fontaine going with his 14 year old son, how, what's the picture of these men who are the more? They're not yeomen. They're not lower class Mississippians going off. These are the upper class uh, white male Mississippians going off to war who are going to be the officers mainly uh, because they're uh, the big wigs of their town, so to yeah. speak. When What about, are there documents that pinpoint them taking their uh, enslaved persons with them as camp, uh, you know, as people around the camp? Because we know that there were many, many thousands who went off uh with those who who owned them at the time uh do we see that in some of these documents as well 
you, I don't know that I've seen any that specifically talk about uh, slaves that were be, being taken uh, by officers, but there are mm -hmm. definitely documents that talk about slaves being used by the Confederate government. And particularly, there's quite a bit of correspondence dealing with uh, the use of slaves on fortifications, on the railroads, other strategic points. Mm -hmm. So yes, there is a good bit of material related to the employment of slaves and the use of slaves by the by the Confederate government. Mm -hmm. And it is it is quite fascinating to see. It's, again, that's something that's often quite hard to document. Mm -hmm. the, the other thing I was going to mention, too, is, Jeff, remember, I think you were the one that pointed me to the document, or maybe we just ended up transcribing it, and that's how I found it. It's it's in this sample document collection that Steph built, but it's it's this message basically worrying about the number of enslaved peoples that are being recruited into the Union Army, um, yep. kind of a warning that this is this is an issue. And one of the things you're going to notice is at the same time you start to see some deser desertion and dissent in the Confederate ranks, Confederate leaders are also worried because you're starting to see the increased recruitment of African-American enslaved men um, in Mississippi um, and, of course, across in Louisiana as well. So that's one of the other places you're going to see it. And, and don't forget, too, John, you're also just going to see it, like I said, in continued documentation of the daily life of Mississippi um, that continues even though there's a war going on. And so there's going to be charges of um, kidnapping of African-Americans, trying to sell African-Americans, um, the, the kind of that, the continued abuses of, that you're gonna see in an enslaved society are gonna continue and those are gonna show up as well. The mm -hmm. difference once we get to reconstruction, of course, is that you can hear from African-Americans themselves as opposed to just about African-Americans overwhelmingly in the documents. Yeah, I can't, I can't wait to, to hear about that because I I was trained the old school way where it's like, okay, it's over. Here's some reconstruction, but not a lot. Most of us were. Yeah. Most of us were trained yeah. that way. Yeah. For yeah. a long time, I'm embarrassed to admit, I taught that way. Most of my class on the Civil War and Reconstruction for years was antebellum period through the war. And it mm -hmm. has really changed over the last 20 years um, as more and more of us have said, you, you can't understand the significance of the war unless you go continue on. Mm -hmm. And, and so you know, it's really during... During the beginning of the Reconstruction period, you really start hearing from a lot of the Unionists in Mississippi. When when Will, uh, Sharkey becomes governor, that's when you start hearing from a lot of voices that haven't been heard from before in the governor's uh, correspondence. And there's some mm. fascinating letters, particularly up from uh, North Mississippi, from uh, where there was a pretty strong Union contingent uh, of, of and actually quite a number of men that fought for the Union from North Mississippi writing into the governor and, and you're hearing about this you know, for the first time. So it's really, it's really exciting. Jeff turned me on to a letter from a guy by the name of W.T. Rowland, who is made, he's, he's being asked to take a loyalty oath in 1865 and he writes to the governor and he's like, um, I had to leave the state. I fought for the union. I came back to the state and you know, you can, you can just hear the tone. Mm -hmm. Basically like, are you kidding me? Like, right. and there's this line in there, like, basically, because of, I've done all this, I would like to know what it takes to be a citizen. And it's great, you know, of just this, like, what do you, what do you want? So, yeah. The, is is that in the sample docs? I, yeah. I feel like I've seen that name. I know. Oh, yeah. Rowan's yeah. one of my favorites. So just so everybody knows, the sample doc site mm -hmm. is specifically called that because we can't promise that it's representative. We haven't gone all the way through the documents yet. 
But what I wanted to do when I created the idea behind it was to pull documents based on the calendars, basically the indices of these collections, to help people understand what's in this collection. And then what Steph did, we really build this amazing Omeka site that makes this available to people. Um, we have lesson plans that go with it as well, but that's where you can find a lot of these documents that go with it. And they're, they're just incredible. They're phenomenal. Yeah. Steph, let's, uh, let's talk about that real quick with the lesson plans, uh, because I think this is something that makes this site a little bit different than many others, where you're not only showcasing digital history and digital projects or a digital project, you're also showcasing how do you bring this across in a classroom environment? And that's, and that's really key to the understanding of the gaining traction with this project in new and different ways. Uh, can you speak a little bit on that, uh, that part of, of the site? Oh, definitely. Yeah. And that was one of the main goals, I think, at the beginning of the project in terms of um, creating the sample site. Um, Susanna wanted to have, showcase these, and we had a lot of discussions about what we could do with these sample documents. And one of the first things Susanna mentioned is that we need to have K through 12 lesson plans, or at least, you know, for our site, um, it's fourth grade, eighth grade, and high school, um, or how they're, you know, how they're separated into the site. And we separated them um, by four different themes. And I am the child of two K through 12 Mississippi educators, a very proud child of of them. Um, and so one of the things that, you know, being a child of a student, you realize, I mean, the child of a teacher, you realize very quickly um, how little time these teachers actually have. We're talking about a 20,000 <laughs> document collection. Um, teachers are busy enough and they want to be able to teach really cool content in their classrooms, but they do not have the time to go through every one of these, which is why the sample document site was so important. Um, through grants, we were able to hire um, some teachers out of Mississippi, some veterans who've been in the classroom and know exactly what teachers want and need. Um, and they wrote all of our um wrote all of our lesson plans for us. And they are, um, everything in the lesson plans includes the original documents, the transcribed documents, the metadata. Um, and I've gone through them and they're very interactive for these classrooms. So um, not only are we offering teachers a really cool resource, we're actually, we're also exposing um, Mississippi students to documents that, you know, they've never had in textbooks before. So we have a new generation of students um, who are going to be exposed to some really cool social and military history from the state. Hmm. So I want to uh, go around the horn with this, this question. Uh, with the secession crisis, with the recruitment of, of the men into the Confederate Army with the anti-Confederate sentiment going on, I'll, I'll call it that, it's the Unionist sentiment still going on. Descent. The descent, yes, descent. Yeah. Um, which I'm really harping on now because not because I'm a Yankee, but because uh, I grew up thinking that every white male Mississippi was for it, you know, until I read like, uh, you know, all the the vote counts and stuff like that with secession in other states. Like, oh, not everybody was for it. Mm -hmm. What, uh, from the documents that you've seen so far, um, which which one stand out to you or surprised you or was like, this is a really cool document that needs to be seen to, to help tell this story of, let's say, the secession crisis or the early recruitment? For the early recruitment, 
it'd be it'd be some of the Charles the Charles Fontaine type documents. There's another one in there, Steph. I'm going to forget the name, um, but basically what he's saying is that it was it was the document I was describing. Is it Gates? Maybe it's William Gates. I'm trying to remember who it was who was who was basically saying, "Look, I'm I'm glad I'm serving, but he can't. My commanding officer can't do this to me." Kind of a thing. Yeah, that's that's James Gates. Was that James Gates? Okay, yeah, my first Mississippi. Yeah, and it's just so it's it's if if you just want to look at that time period, it'd be that. If you want to get into the dissent, though, and I love the word dissent because it covers people who become pro-union, it become it covers people who are frustrated Confederates and everything in between. Just because you dissent doesn't mean you desert. Um, but there's some documents in here too which talk about you know we're trying to enforce policy. And, you know, we're trying to round up these deserters and the locals will not even help us round up the deserters. Um, And so this is one of the documents coming out of Madison County in 1863. There are documents from in the sample doc site from during the Vicksburg campaign saying there are deserters literally stealing food and supplies that are meant for the Confederate forces in the area and families. And so you, you see you see what happens in war. You know, it's it is not this simple story that is so often told that historians know and and the public knows if if we think about it. But it's it's we're so often charged with explaining something, and the explanations often lead to simplifications, mm-hmm. and that's what these documents fight against. Mm-hmm. How about you, Jeff? In some of the early war stuff. I don't know if I can point to one specific letter, but just mm-hmm. the the volume of letters coming in from every corner of the state from men excited to be going to war. It's just it's it's overwhelming almost. I don't know how the governor kept up with it all because he's getting let, bombarded by letters from every you know little town and hamlet in the state. Send us uniforms, send us swords, send us pistols, send us muskets, send us basically everything we need to fight. We've got nothing. And I don't know how they organ- made any kind of organization out of that chaos, but it was it, mm-hmm. it just at the beginning of the war, it was just it was chaos. There's every little town in Hamlet is forming a company and they're all wanting to go fight the Yankees right now. They don't want to wait a day, a week or a month. They want to go right now. Only, you know, we need uniforms, muskets, uh, bayonets, food, ammunition, <laughs> basically right. everything. And, and the state really didn't have that much to give. So um, it had to be incredibly frustrating for the governor getting all of this in and trying to make any kind of sense out of it and trying to keep these people happy. And a lot of them very quickly got upset when they didn't get the the supplies they wanted and felt they, they deserved. Right. Steph, do you remember the document that Lindsay brought our attention to? Because um, I was going to say, it's not just white men in Mississippi who are rushing to arms. There was, there was right. So there's, so there's, you know, um, the woman from Natchez, right, who we have in the sample document site, who's yeah. volunteering her services as a nurse. But one of our editors, uh, Lindsay Peterson, brought this great document to our attention that this woman's basically trying to organize a regiment of women nurses, um, and they expect to be paid um, as basically soldiers in a regiment. And it's this, this it's this like Nightingale Regiment, if I remember right, Steph. Yeah, so it's white Mississippians, men and women 
are going to be part of this rush to arms. Um, in, in oh, yeah. Yeah. One of the documents that I was thinking about that um, I actually did research for and failed miserably because everyone in the 19th century signed their names in initials wow. and gave a very ambiguous region. Um, so she was difficult to find, but um, she was a widow by the name of Mrs. J.O. Smith. Um, and she was from Vicksburg. Yeah, so so close. Yeah, she was from Vicksburg, yep. which, you know, um, as I read her letter, I get some eerie for shadow and like oh no it's not gonna end well for you is it <laughs> oh, so but anyway mrs j.o smith um her husband died before the war started so she was a little bit more even more difficult to find in some other documents um but she writes the governor immediately and is like listen i have nursing skills i'm ready to go send me to virginia tomorrow just let me know how you can get me there and i will be a nurse asap and even better i have friends who are also widows who are willing to serve as nurse so please like use me and it's this really cool letter because man is it ardent it's it's so passionate like i will go tomorrow please just let me go or tell me how i can help and so um that was something that was surprising to me in the collection because you know as a historian we're always looking for women's voices in these types of collections but when it comes to ardency and support of the war hearing her be so passionate was something that I don't know if I wasn't expecting to hear it, but it was something that was just really cool to find. It was a really neat gem. And it's fun to balance that, right? With like Mary Jones and some of the experiences exactly. we're going to be talking about next week as women start to be like, look, you know, you promised to help take care of us. And I don't want to get too much into next week's topic, but those are going to be some of those, again, just like the enthusiasm you're going to see regardless of gender, as the war drags on, you know, what some of these pressures are gonna look like, not everybody turns, you know, you're still gonna see some hardcore defenders to the end, mm -hmm. but the, the pressure of war and the impact that it's gonna have on Mississippians is also gonna be interesting to watch. So I, I love how you could tell Susanna has been a professor a while because she tells you what's coming in next week's lesson. <laughs> and it's like, huh. So don't I, skip class. Now, don't, you don't skip. Don't no. bring your notes. It's going to be so much fun because it's about our women. And so, you know, we've, we've got some phenomenal stories for next week. So for anyone who is uh, tuning into the live stream right now or uh, later going to be listening to the podcast, how can they help out in any way with this project, if at all? So we definitely benefit from the work of volunteer transcribers. We're, we're going to be pausing our call for volunteer transcribers, um, other than the ones who are currently working, because there has just been, because of COVID. Mm. Okay, just for the record, MDAH, if you're not doing something to support MDAH or in your state archive where you live, please do it. Um, they have worked through shutdown. They have worked through limited work schedules because of COVID safety regulations, which were very important to follow but it has really slowed down their ability to get us digitized documents. So starting in June, starting June one, if you wanna help, we're going to have hundreds and hundreds of documents available for people to start transcribing. Um, you, you can still help now, but we're, we're probably gonna run out for a little bit in the next month or two, just because of COVID and we all know, we've all experienced this. But starting June one, if you'll go to cwrgm.org and you click on get involved, 
um, you're going to be able to watch a short training video that it's 13 minutes. It just gives you the basics of if you haven't read 19th century handwriting, they do these crazy things with double S's that look like F's. Mm -hmm. um, the people who told you that your handwriting was horrible and that in the 19th century people learned handwriting, it was beautiful. You will find that that is a lie and that a lot of people do not have beautiful handwriting. So the, the, the video helps you understand how to find patterns and transcribe. But basically, if you want to help us start in June 1, please, please, please get involved. And if you're an educator, you know, please, if you're thinking about using those lesson plans and using those documents, if you need our help, if you want us like working with your students in the classroom starting in the fall, absolutely. If you want us help in your classroom this spring, I'll do that too. I mean, we're just, it's just so important to us that people really be able to use these documents um, and use them effectively. I know I'll, I know Steph will be putting me to work uh, as a volunteer to help because I, I have my reading glasses now. You better believe I, it. I, I remember going through all that script in the archives. and it's, Log the hours, man. I'm going to put you right <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's going to be my community service. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm really, I'm really looking forward to, to next week's topic. And remember, everyone, this is the first part of a five-part series. Uh, we're going to have five live streams, including tonight. And five podcast episodes going out to you. So you can get it in any way you see fit on any platform, uh, Facebook, YouTube, Spotify. It'll be up wherever you get this stuff. So that way you're introduced to the history just like you are with digital history. It's accessibility. It allows you to get this wherever uh, you wish to. And uh, I'm looking forward to the next four weeks of, of stuff. And I'm sure I'm going to learn a lot. And everyone in the comment section is going to learn a lot. And everyone listening to the podcast is going to learn a lot. Um, everyone in the comments right now, I put links to each of the things we talked about this evening over on uh, CWRGM.org, as well as the sample documents. You can test those out for yourself and see how uh, you like that. And uh, check out everything on the website uh, as, as well, everything that's available right now. Uh, and get ready, get your reading glasses ready, because we're going to be looking at a script all summer long. Yeah, starting in June, you guys, we're launching the big site with probably, it's probably going to be about 2,000 documents that we'll have with the launch in June. So awesome. we're excited. So I want to thank each of you here on the panel this evening for coming on and being a part of this first conversation of this series. It really means a lot to me, and I know it means a lot to everyone listening and watching at home uh so uh susanna thank you so much for getting us set up and underway with all this from from your per, uh, your end of the spectrum here uh it really does mean a lot that we got this off the ground and uh we're going to get a lot of people interested in this project because it really needs to be seen by a lot of people not only in mississippi but around the country and i know we just want to thank you john i mean you get the word out like quite frankly i I can't. Um, I can I can write until my hands cramp, but you have this reach and you're taking your time to make that reach available for us and for everybody who wants to experience this. So we're really grateful. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you for being our special guest this evening and thank for uh, and for always being available for Susanna's texts and calls. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. And and Steph, 
please take care of your pug for me. Yeah, I'll be Thank back. <laughs> I'll always be back. Your your listeners are probably so tired of hearing from me, but yeah, I'll be back. They're not. They're not. This is like the sixth time I think Steph has been on. I think, and so, for good reason. We've lost. We've lost count. We don't even count anymore. Yeah, BWRG is just so cool, man. Like I got to keep coming back. There you go. So tune in next week, everyone. Uh, I would say same bat time, same bat channel, but uh, I won't. Uh, but same time, same place next week on Facebook and YouTube on the Tattoo Historian pages. Uh, please share this out to anyone you feel would love to see it. And we're going to be releasing the first podcast as well here in the near future. We'll be back next week with part two of our five-part series. Uh, please take care, everyone. Be safe out there. We will see you next week. Good night. Thanks, everybody. Good night. <laughs>